Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Chris Beyer, Head of Financial Flow at EDF Trading North America. During the episode, Chris breaks down the last few years from the lens of a trader and how EDF navigated these volatile commodity price markets. In addition, Chris walks through EDF's hedging practice and how it relates to the minerals and royalty space. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Chris had to say. Chris, good morning. Welcome on to the podcast. Hey, morning. So uh, I think this is a timely episode. I know we've talked about doing this together for a while, but you know, as we're recording this, it's March 1st. Ukraine got invaded by Russia uh, last Thursday, I believe, and you know the commodity markets are kind of crazy right now. So if there's anyone to to come onto the podcast and, and talk about that, I think it's it's a trader, right? So a little background on yourself before we jump into kind of the markets and and hedging and and minerals and how it all intertwines. Where you grew up, where you went to school, your professional background, and and how you wound up at EDF and what you're doing with EDF. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'm born and raised in Houston. Didn't have any family prior in the business, so completely kind of kind of homegrown. But I grew up on the southeast side of town, kind of Gulfgate Mall, not too far from you know Javi Airport. And you know, when, I guess when you grow up kind of over there, we went to Catholic school growing up and going into high school, came downtown to St. Thomas. But you know, raised with pretty pretty tough roots, and uh, I think learned to hustle kind of at an early age, and so probably carried that with me through school. I went off to UT for, you know, after St. Thomas and enjoyed a fun, a fun year up there and then came back, worked, put myself through U of H. And so went on a longer kind of college plan, but, you know, probably pretty appreciative of, uh, you know, working full time, going to school at night, kind of, uh, you know, graduating that way. So came in kind of the job market, pretty, pretty hungry. And so how did you come into the space? Was it always from the origination lens or? Yeah. Yeah. So I started it at, on the consulting side of an equity research firm called John S. Harold. IHS eventually bought us out. Uh, and I think SP Global now bought out IHS. So started kind of on the upstream side, always kind of understanding and, and you know, appreciating kind of the EMP side of the business. So I've always kind of tackled it from that lens. So, you and, know, Art, Art Smith then? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know Art. I was in Houston and, you know, Art ran the Houston office. Uh, I worked for a guy named Dave Harris. And yeah, I watched Art, you know, before the acquisition, I watched him through the acquisition. He'll he'll tell the story. It was a great story. Like one of the final items to negotiate in his sale, asked was maybe not dead last, but they were well out of the playoffs. And this is probably summer and he's negotiating to keep Astros playoff tickets and like wouldn't wouldn't give up the negotiation point. So, but yeah, Art's a great guy. No, my my first job out of college, I worked for Ronnie Wise at PLS, and mm-hmm. Ronnie had partnered with Derek Petroleum out of India to compete with at the time was uh, IHS Herald, and uh, I think we did a pretty good job at, at taking their market share. But I got to know Art because in the M and A database world, Art was kind of the the godfather, right? And then. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it was a great stomping ground. My boss, you know, was pretty detail oriented. They kind of start now just really said, you know, read as much as you can and kind of uh, absorb as much as you can. And I think I did with that. I found I just I enjoyed the business. So everything from, you know, 10Ks to 
using BP statistical review for, you know, supply and demand. So just kind of getting your hands dirty with everything basic that you would do like as a young analyst. And, and I think gave me a pretty strong foundation in the business understanding, you know, from field work up to, you know, kind of the executive suite, how it's all, you know, at a, at a basic level, kind of how it's all managed. And then, and then, so I started kind of in the gas and power trading over at Conoco on their uh, uh, trade floor with the West Group, and then from there transitioned to a small produced services company, or not small, the mid-size called SEMA Energy here in Houston, Tommy Edwards and those guys. And that was pretty good hands-on, you know, learned the basics kind of at Conoco, and then I really wanted to get into the front office kind of as quick as possible, more business development origination. And uh, while everything was gas at Conoco. SEMA gave me a pretty good, you know, hands-on work with the producer services side of the business. So, you know, physical gas and, and you know, marketed that, bought crude, bought NGLs, marketed NGLs. So it was a real, it was, well, it was smaller volume. It was a really good intro into kind of the physical marketing business and, and, you know, credit kind of Tommy and those guys with giving us a lot of leeway to just go find a good opportunity, go close business, grow it from there and, and kind of hands-on figured out solutions. So I didn't do as much hedging there, but it was all, you know, all streams of marketing for the producer. And then from SEMA, I went to Next Era. So larger, you know, larger balance sheet at the time, you know, since SEMA's, SEMA and Mitsubishi partnership, I think has, has evolved. But at the time, I wanted to go get into a larger side of the business and Next Era was a good step. There, it was entirely focused on gas, still much more physical, but at the time, Marcellus was really expanding. And so producers are looking at backhaul on, you know, wrecks or pipes into the Gulf. And so I was looking at a lot more structured, long-term takeaway type of opportunities with producers there. So think hedges embedded inside of kind of physical, physical deals. And then the opportunity came to come over to EDF, they didn't, the origination group at EDF had shrunk over the years. And so I came in as kind of the first really gas originator in a while with, you know, kind of a lens on producer business and growing that business. So, you know, here I've had a good opportunity to kind of spread my wings, lay out, you know, an EMP strategy, physical, financial, you know, kind of the whole bit, and then fit that into the business. And, you know, EDF here in North America, we've got a very large retail book and, power generation, you know, business where we dispatch uh, generation facilities. So it's a great place if you're a producer focused, you know, upstream focused originator like myself is a great place to come in. And, you know, EDF is short every day. And so they need somebody to go buy molecules, be it physical, financial, you know, market around that risk. So, you know, I look at EDF as much more of a consumer based business. And me being focused on the producer side, it's been a really good place to kind of uh, leverage that expertise. And, and I think, you know, the firm has, has enjoyed that too. As we all plan our travel and BD schedules for the next two quarters, a must attend event that needs to be on your calendar is the Mark Mineral and Royalty Conference taking place at the Post Oak Hotel in Houston on April 18th and 19th. With two days of action-packed networking, panel discussions and presentations, the Mark Mineral and Royalty Conference proves to be one of the best networking opportunities of the year to get deals done and form new partnerships in the mineral space. For more information, please visit mineralconference.com or email info at mineralconference.com. Talk in a, a little more detail really on how you're working with people on, on the lending side, on you know the producers, as you mentioned. This is 
on minerals podcast. So we'll paint the context on, on how someone like EDF would work with a minerals company. But what exactly are you doing? Is it, is it, is it hedging? Do you do prepays? What kind of, there's financing that I think at certain times in the market is attract, an attractive alternative to traditional debt? Just spell that out a little further. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, EDF's not a bank. As far as I know, we have no intentions to be. But obviously within commodity markets, you know, options, premiums, cash flow, kind of moving in and out the door, you know, timing of cash flows, certainly a very important, you know, topic. You know, as I've evolved at EDF, I kind of started out building more of a physical gas business around producers. We still do that very much day in and day out, long-term, short-term, but I had intentions of growing more of a hedging business. So whether it's you know being secured alongside a regional bank, secured alongside term loan, um, even some unsecured business you know, where it fits. And that business really took off in 2020, kind of started building that about 2017, 2018. Cut our teeth on some transactions, you know, had some good success. But I think at the time, 2018, 2019, in commodity markets and that market especially, it's quite competitive. And and I think to get that off the ground, I just didn't think the risk reward was there for us. So we we looked at some deals and and kind of got some under our belt, did what we can. But I think it was more around building a foundation and turning out in 2020, we got lucky as prices, you know, collapsed and and we had a few few kind of internal arrangements set up where we could strike pretty quick and we did. And so that hedging, you know, financial hedging business around gas, crude, NGLs has just grown pretty dramatically, probably the fastest growing business here within the North American office. So, and, you know, whether it's minerals royalties, you know, uh, working interest owners or even operators, the general idea is commodity price risk management. So as you, you know, have revenue, Revenue coming in the door driven by price of a commodity, whether you're producing or not, you're going to want at some point to have an ability to risk manage, you know, that price. So that's hedging. So for, you know, firms out there, royalty, you know, working interest owners that have no debt, you need somebody to effectively underwrite credit most of the time unsecured. So we, we, we do that. We certainly manage that credit risk internally where there's, there's limits around everything. We're, we're evaluating pretty extensively the due diligence, but in the end, yes, we are putting on hedges with an understanding that over time we'll get paid back on that cash flow. So, you know, it's been a good partnership for both sides where maybe limits in the market are a little trickier if there's no debt, if there's no bank to kind of underwrite a loan. What's happened post Dodd Frank is it's a little tougher for, you know, non debt counterparties to, for non debt mineral royalty and, and working interest owners to find an outlet to go hedge that molecule. The amount of counterparties that will underwrite unsecured credit is has shrunk quite a bit in the last five years. And yeah, and, and so that's a window of opportunity you guys have seen to grow and expand. Yeah, and and you know we're certainly the newest entrant into that space. You know the folks that have been there for years. You know the majors and kind of commodity, uh, kind of non-bank commodity risk managers out there. You know, quite sophisticated, very good, but they've also they're also much larger. And so what we found is there was a market, you know, mid-size, even some of the smaller side, to grow that business, be an outlet for them. Really, kind of to me, back to the roots of just kind of hustling and, and, you know, working off service. So I think we've done a good job of 
of trying to keep up with the demand by just turning paper fast and being, you know, quicker, I think, to turn contracts and get those in place. And, and that's, I think, worked us, you know, into a niche where, you know, we're, we're in pretty high demand now. So it's, it's been tough to kind of keep up with, with all the paperwork. Real quick. I mean, what do you see for, for your clientele? Is it really driven by they have a private equity sponsor or they have a borrowing base? And so they're being pushed in the direction of hedging. I find a lot of family offices in the mineral space that have sizable portfolios, portfolios that are large enough to hedge. They go, oh, uh, we like the commodity risk exposure. By mandate, RLPs don't want to hedge or we've never hedged. And, you know, Rob Vi at Aegis is a good buddy of mine. And I, I tell him, you know, if someone says that, what are you saying? He's like, well, everyone loves the ride up, but you can go back to him and say, do you love when everything falls off a cliff. I mean, what do you find in those conversations? Is there a bit of an education curve on getting people comfortable? And it's really, you know, I think as spaces like minerals and royalties become more savvy and sophisticated, financial engineering is just as important as, you know, land and and buying the the best rock and intel on operators and all that. Uh, Because at the end of the day, you know, your return to your investors is, is your return. And so hedging is a tool in the tool belt, right? But, but what do you, how, how do dialogues go with minerals companies? I'm sure they've been more involved of late, but traditionally haven't done anything in hedging, right? Yeah, that's that's typically been the approach, at least from, from my seat. It was not an active space for us. And it's hard for me to say just because of growing this business, we weren't the first name everybody thought of. So I am, I was, I was never the first call <clears throat> that anybody would give. And you know, I know Rob well. So, you know, from their standpoint, from the Aegis standpoint, and some of the other folks, they're, you know, they're advisors, right? And so they come at it from a little bit of different lens. I'm agnostic on, you know, I don't give advice. So from our standpoint, we're the principal in the trade. So they're typically come to us when they're ready. I think more of the the convincing of the price level and, and where to target, uh, those kind of things. I think the Folks at Aegis and 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 uh, and the like, those guys work that in. But it's definitely changed, not just for minerals and royalties and and uh, working interest owners, uh, but uh, operated folks as well. Like as the business has convi- has evolved into, you know, much more of a cash flow driven business. I mean, hell, the producers are paying taxes. Think about the income taxes. So as Cash flow has, has uh, you know, is being generated, and and balance sheets and you know, cash flows are stronger. There's less of a need to hedge. So if there's no debt there and it's all equity, it becomes much more of a a cautionary, I think, play on, on today. Oil's rising in the front above a hundred. So had you put in collars or swaps, you know, you're potentially above those levels and potentially have mark to market that you're that you're paying a hedge provider like myself settling every month. So there's certainly a lack of appetite to hedge when you're so bullish, but I completely agree that hedges in place in the 2020 time period. I watched plenty of producers with upstream exposure that were completely saved by that end and had a lot more flexibility. So it's a game of just how are you uh, evaluating kind of your forward cash flows? What's kind of the break even you really need to protect? And, you know, on the the amount of molecules and production that you can take a risk on, it, that's that's kind of your investment, you know, decision on what you're seeking as far as, you know, a return to cover. So it's definitely changed in the past few years as cash flows have improved, leverage has fallen, 
And you're even seeing it on the, you know, the uh, the bank side as there as in some of the credit agreements that the hedge requirements have fallen, and even the debt is giving is is more comfortable with taking a little more, not hedging as as you know as high amounts and and allowing a little bit of upside to play out, you know, into uh, into cash flows. Um, but it's you know it's producers are inherently bullish, so yeah. it's always going to be a conversation. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac crew activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. So I want to go back on kind of the the weeds on on hedging and requirements and all that from a minerals perspective. But I, I again, I, I said this in the opening of the episode, it's a hell of a time right now. Um, oil's over a hundred bucks and gas is over five. And yeah, I did a webinar last week and I just did a, a run through quarter by quarter from Q1 2020 to present just to give people historical reference on average oil and, and natural gas prices in context of transactions happening. And it just, I mean, it was shitty. <laughs> and yeah. it, you get real comfortable real quick on high, you know, kind of flushy prices in the market. But anyways, the last two years have been interesting is, is, is the punchline. And so would love from your perspective, just what was that like? I mean, I'm sure your phone was ringing off the hook to place hedges when oil's falling off the cliff. I mean, how hard is that to actually execute? Walk me through 2020 and onwards. Yeah the COVID and the oil price war and what it was like to walk into the office every day, right? Yeah. So I'll, I'll rewind before that, which is, again, I I, I mean, my career, my uh, my life's probably been, a, a like everybody's probably been a bit of luck and just t- timing kind of playing out. So, you know, in building that business, kind of this, this hedging business, 
with competition where it was, I would always argue that, hey, look, EDF is a consumer. Um, our exposure is very different than some of the parties that are producers. And so when price goes down, when, when crude oil falls, I am going to be uh, more, in, I should be more insulated than some of the other counterparties. And then 2020 happens, fast forward, that's exactly what happened is, you know, we had to grow extremely fast. And so we weren't built in a way to onboard, you know, that many customers that rapidly. So it was a lot of heavy lifting and I think just some internal maneuvering to kind of make things happen. But for the most part, we became, you know, the call that everybody was making because we were open for business. And, and, uh, and, and look, those guys are strong, extremely investment grade, uh, you know, extremely strong balance sheets, investment grade counterparties. There was no doubt in my mind that the rest of the space was going to be fine over time. There's no worry there. It was more a case of price has fallen. You want to try to figure out a solution. Who can pick up the phone and who can take the call? And I think the market, not just us, got so busy that everybody's phones are inundated. And we just had a business that became as busy as some of the other guys. So I think they're all doing a lot of the same things in a very, in a very good way. I think we try to distinguish ourselves a little bit, but you know, it's, it is a commodity market. So at that time and, and still today, I evaluate from a, you know, every, every is the, every counterparty that comes in the door, me as the face of this business, I own it. And so with enough of a background that I can credit art and the, you know, team at China's Herald has kind of given me a foundation for us, you know, understanding the financials of a lot of these guys, understanding how EMP business works. And so when times get stressful, and you're looking at an asset value that in a $30 price environment may not look great, you have to remember that if I'm the buyer of a commodity swap, in this case, I only lose if price goes up, right? If price goes down, I am not exposed. I owe them money. And so if there's a bankruptcy situation or, or a default, then I'm typically going to be in a better position. There's certainly cases where prices go up. You could have defaults. And we we're very worried about that, you know, extremely worried about that in the $30, $40 price environment. You weren't worried about prices going to 100. You're worried about prices going from 35 to 42. And while a producer may want to hedge or anybody with upstream exposure may have wanted to hedge, the reality was you really have to understand the break-even economics. And if I put on a hedge at 42 and and you can't make money until price goes to 45, then I am in the same boat that you are. So I think a lot of it was looking at it from that lens. I think we all felt like the markets were moving in the direction of, of moving up. We certainly put on some hedges in the $35 to $40 price range. And I, I think they were all done with, with extremely good intent and extremely kind of astute you know, evaluation. So they all, they all performed. We certainly saw some defaults as prices rose. I think they were extreme anomalies. I think the market would say they were extreme anomalies, but in the end, they ended up being you know, fine for us. So I had one producer in particular that shared with me his cash flow model. And so I, I hooked it up to Bloomberg and prices was in the $25, $30 range. And I literally watched it tick. I watched his, I mean, I watched his firm, his ability to stay solvent just tick right in front of me. And you know, we didn't put on the hedge in the high 20s for that reason. I said, Flush production came on in, in March and prices were collapsing. And so this is end of April, early May. And again, I had this thing ticking right in front of me. And 
you know, so there's some cases where you could have put on a hedge and I'm not sure that I could have charged enough margin to protect us in, in the form of the credit risk there. Fortunately for him, he was able to lay off some of the risk with a physical marketer. And then we came back and hedged those guys in Q3, Q4 kind of timeframe. So, you know, when the prices get that low, you're getting a lot of calls and there's a lot of panic's a good word, I think. And you know, knock on wood, I think I think it was it was it was a tough decision to make in some cases, but I think we held off at the right times. And as prices recovered, we were able to lay on hedges at much higher prices. And and you know, while maybe from the other side, the upstream side, you know, wanted us to be available at those lower prices, I think for all the parties, it was not the right move. And you know, explain to me the dynamic of bringing in a, a physical marketer and, and why that made it more transactable. Just explain that dynamic. So on the physical versus financial. So if I'm buying a physical gas crude NGLs from a producer, I'm going to remit payment over the next month following delivery. So I'm going to owe them some form of cash flow. Right. If in a floating price situation, I'm going to owe them a floating price that you'll calculate after the production month and I'll remit it to you. In gas, it's 25th of the day, month following flow. Crude is about 20. And so if you have a physical relationship or physical kind of purchase contract, then I've got an amount of cushion or credit there that I can lean against and use as collateral to then go put on, a, let's say, a fixed price hedge, which as a swap, the price moves up or down, exposure will go you know, one way or the other, either I'll owe them or they owe me. And I can get a lot more comfortable if, it, if I have some form of collateral. And the physical contract just gives you collateral in the form of I owe you payment. So with this producer in particular, I kind of noted that as, as he you know, mentioned who he could, he could go to. And I said, look, the physical marketer is going to be in those low price scenarios like that is going to be you know, a great outlet. I think as prices rise and and depending on what kind of head strategy is on their end and how they're marketing it, you know, the financial swap becomes a little bit easier, I think, to remit down to your royalty owners, to your working interest owners. But in that time, it ended up being a really good outlet, you know, for those guys and, and can be kind of a good solution. So in the theme of going down memory lane, let's talk about the freeze of, was it February 2020? And natural gas prices, I'd love to, I don't think we've chatted about this over a beer, but that was just such a fascinating month. I mean, you look at, you know, some guys have told me they bought gas royalties in the midcon or in certain areas and they got paid back in a day and a half on investment. Well, explain how it actually works. Like how, how are there 3000 X prices in a day? Like who takes that? Explain that whole dynamic. Cause that's fascinating to me. Man, that's a that's a whole class on that you, you know you could spend a ton of time on. I think simply put, you know, Platts Gas Daily, IFERC first of the month pricing and gas is you know Platts is gathering up fixed price trades that take place at those hubs throughout the day that are reported, and then they you know it's confidential and then they report a number out. So it is the average of the fixed price trades that trade at those points throughout the day. So depending on you know, who the buyer and the seller of at these markets, they may have to fill a downstream need. If I'm if I'm buying gas in Oklahoma on a really, really cold day, perhaps I have some commitments on the, you know, on a pipe coming out of Oklahoma downstream, and I need to find gas to fill that short or that power plant or industrial, whoever needs the gas, residential, whoever needs the gas, you need to fill that volume at effectively any price in those scenarios. And so, 
you know, there's liquidity in the markets, you had freeze offs. So, you know, on the supply side, you certainly had cases where it was really hard to find gas and be it residential. I, th- I think, you know, I'm not an expert in kind of exactly what happened physically all over the country that day, but what you generally had was, you know, survival conditions. And so market players were turning off where possible. And it was certainly here on the floor. It was focus on who needs the gas the most, uh, you know, emergency needs, heating, power generation. And so in those cases, in those scarcity markets, price can move a lot. And so it, it's just a function of supply demand and kind of the inelasticity and how that plays out. It, you know, again, like studied economics in college and that, that part of this market has always been extremely fascinating to me. And you always seem to underestimate as you're seeing an LNG in Europe, you know, gas is a heating component and, you know, the importance and the need of that to go in for, you know, your daily livelihood is extremely important. So in, in cases like that, when you have freeze offs and there's only a couple of places where you can buy the gas, you know, you're, you're willing to pay whatever the price it takes. Now, who's willing to pay the price? Well, in some like of those- me as a, a residential consumer, I'm, I'm going to use five blankets and put on a sweater. I'm not going to pay you know, $10,000 for my energy bill when it's normally 400, right? But well, but to a certain extent you did, right? Because the utility who's obligated to supply heat center point in the case of Houston, you know, has a supply profile. They need to fill that to keep, you know, heating demand going throughout the, the market, power generations, the same thing that, you know, their demand picks up intraday or midday. And so as that demand picks up, they have to go buy the gas. And in order to keep your house warm, um, you maybe as a small component of the market may turn your heat down, but for the most part, there's still a lot of need out there. And so you on the margin, you know, where this stuff takes place, it's not the, the complete market, you know, turning off. It is a case of all of this, this price movement really happens on the margin. That incremental molecule to move gets priced at this extremely high price. And that's where you see kind of markets get set. Got it. Walk through COVID and then the variants as they popped up and how you saw that unfold. We've been through three iterations of COVID now for the most part. And how does the market react from from a pricing standpoint? And how does hedging get relayed into that? And and what what did you all do through that? Yeah, I think COVID, you know, certainly affected me and the floor more on just getting up to the trade floor activity. I mean, it was more a function of demand in the market and how that drove, you know, markets. And I think it was just a lot of unintended consequences on when you pull an economy back like that, you know, supply shortages and, you know, commodity markets certainly play into kind of some of that effect. But I think it was more a case of demand across the globe being affected by people working from home versus in the office, commuting schedules, things like that. So while it's been a weird couple of years due to COVID, I'd say that, you know, in the commodity trading world, it's much more of just a, uh, you know, evaluation of what demand is doing and the supply around it than necessarily, I'd say, COVID per se. It wasn't necessarily fun being out of the office and, and kind of missing all that, but it was also also fun to see the wife and kids a little more. But I, I would say it was much more on the personal side, COVID, okay. than, than anything, anything else. Okay. 
Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed, shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. And then now getting into, I'm a minerals company and I have a portfolio, are there certain areas that it's harder to hedge and implement strategy, i.e. Appalachia, for instance, or is it really just, you know, molecules and molecule and it it doesn't really matter because, you know, I'm getting more on on the actual physical side. How how does that affect what what you guys are doing for me? Yeah, there there can be, I I would say for all intents and purposes, for the most part, Producers, upstream, you know, interest holders have really hedged inside of a 24, maybe, maybe at most kind of 36 month window. And that that's been pretty consistent that we see across the business. And it's kind of always been in that frame. You certainly have some players that go out further. So if you think of a liquidity window inside of 36 months, you know, your underlying WTI and and Henry Hub are going to be the most liquid. And then as you step out into basis, be it kind of mid-cush crude or you know, Dominion or, you know, Houston Ship Channel, et cetera, the liquidity really drives our ability to kind of effectuate a pretty tight, you know, bid ask. For the most part, though, I think a lot of producers have found that in the past five to 10 years, um, you know, kind of cutting my teeth at Marcellus and watching, you know, takeaway capacity and kind of basis markets really drive economics much more so than really even the underlying. I think a lot of Parties have gotten a little more sophisticated on that end and are pointing to more liquid hubs. So your Dominion, you know, your Lighty, but as you get into, you know, maybe enable some of the mid-continent markets, mostly, you know, producer-driven or supply-driven, you know, it becomes a little less liquid. And that certainly makes it tougher. I think we market quite a bit of gas across North America. And that, that physical marketing capability 
really lends itself well to making basis markets as well. We have storage, we have, you know, power generation in the Northeast, into Texas and into, you know, Southern California. And so as we are filling this need across the portfolio physically, that risk management, that kind of that port, that platform, I can leverage back to the upstream side, be it, you know, operating, non-operating royalty interest owners as they need to hedge that basis market we become a very good outlet for that. And the, the physical capability is really a strong, is a strong piece to leverage and giving us kind of that demand to go backfill, you know, with supply. So there are certainly some very illiquid points. I think for the most part, everything, you know, we get called about, especially in gas, we can make, you know, we can make that price. Uh, we can effectuate that price. Okay. I'm a minerals company and I, I want to investigate hedging. Walk me through the ABCs. So you have to get an ISDA set up, right? Is that kind of mm-hmm. step one? Can you explain what an ISDA is, what the requirements are, the time frame around that, you know, cost, you need mm-hmm. licenses, all, all that stuff? Yeah, ISDA is a master agreement. So you put in this master agreement that is is kind of a base form of contract. And then you have what's called a schedule which is where everybody basically amends the master agreement. So you have a master agreement and a schedule, and that really contains all of the terms. You know, it, it, from counterparty to counterparty, everybody's a little different. You know, maybe one term is different here, different there. But in general, what it's doing is just agreeing that if, you know, if we trade a product, how are we going to settle? You know, prices come from here. If there's a default, here are the levels that kind of drive, you know, how that is paid out. What is a default? It, it basically defines all those basic terms so that you can go then transact financial and depending on what you embed into the contract, physical, you know, capabilities as well under that ISTA. And so, you know, we typically underwrite in the same way that, you know, your banks will, if you're extending a loan, we want to look at financial activity, you know, financial history, what the kind of pro forma corporate model maybe suggests, look at a reserve report. I like to see an LOS to kind of understand what the cost structure is, you know, at the field level. So obviously as non-op and royalty owners have become, you know, a larger size of our portfolio for sure, you know, the royalty owners, I don't care as much about the LOS. And so I would, I'd lean on saying they're probably a little easier to evaluate and, but there could be nuances that, you know, maybe you're quite different on the kind of non-op side versus the operated side. But yeah, you put in the ISTA in place. There's a few, you know, kind of a W-9 documents like that to verify that that uh, that everybody's real on both sides. And that defines how you're going to settle. And then you trade underneath that agreement into perpetuity effectively. And, you know, if there's a debt in place Alongside that is that you can put an agreement in to be able to be secured alongside the bank that gives me peri pursue access to the collateral, which helps in our ability to underwrite the credit. So, you know, there's certainly some more structured credit, you know, details that you can get in. It's certainly not that simple, but in the end, you're putting in a master agreement and allowing yourself the ability to go transact swaps, options, you know, any of the above kind of financial risk management products. How long does it take? for that whole process to unfold. I mean, is it advisable that if someone is open to hedging to get the ISDA set up so that they can, because it's it's not like last week happens and then I call Chris Byer tomorrow and I'm locking in hedges, right? Like it's just, that's not how it works. So often what happens, but uh, <laughs> no, the look, I think in a lot of cases, yeah, you want to be prepared, kind of have that in place. 
you know, as our business has expanded, certainly that what I call our, what I'm keeping as our kind of queue of, of activity has ramped up quite a bit. So the timeline's pretty tough to, to kind of pinpoint to probably in Q4 of, of 21, I probably overpromised quite a bit. And as holidays came on and, you know, our staff is completely overworked, all completely my fault. Everybody needs some holidays. So, you know, I've had to give a bit, but yeah, I mean, it really kind of, if you take our ISDA and sign it on the spot, it's a very easy process, but there's some terms everybody wants to negotiate. So it really kind of depends on, on both parties and what are the sticking points in kind of getting through that, that base paper, you know, it's really kind of up to the person on the other side onto how fast they can move it. And talk to me about size and scale. When does it, when does it make sense to, to hedge? How many barrels of production do you need? Or, you know, what are the different criteria that you guys look at or just yeah, it's, foundation? Cause everyone, I would say overwhelming majority of minerals companies think they're too small to hedge. And I, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is to really spell some of it out. And, you know, if they're, they're open to exploring it, they know that they're, Oh, actually we can do this. Right. Or no, we need to, we need to wait. There is certainly a sliding scale of, you know, you talk about the ISDA master agreement and kind of the time and effort it takes to put that in place, both from my side and the other side as well. So there is certainly a sliding scale. I don't know that there's a hard floor that we have. We certainly have not had one. We have some very small producers. We have some very, very large producers as well. So that said, I think what you've seen in markets, I know you've seen in markets really over the past five to 10 years is just an evolution of, you know, technology and the ability to, you know, make it much more efficient, I think, to transact, whether it's electronically or, you know, just uh, internal systems, I think have improved a ton. So I'd like to argue that at some point you can go down to, you know, very, very small increments and trade it, but there's no hard floor. So I'd say it's more a case of what do you want to protect? In this case, I would say options. You were your desire to have the perfectly structured costless collar and you want to hedge, you know, 500 barrels a month type of activity, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time helping you customize the perfect collar as the principal, right? There's advisors that can help do that. But I think swaps, it's very easy to go down to much smaller levels. So I would say if for the working interest owners and royalty owners, keep it simple and look at things like swaps that in terms of a party like myself, effectuating that is much easier than trying to customize, you know, an $80 floor and solve for the top and, and make all these things work. I think the less moving pieces, the better. So that, you know, that's certainly on a sliding scale as well, depending on where the appetite is. Okay. Well, what are, um, what are some of the ways you've seen mineral companies implement hedging? Is it around transactions? Mm-hmm. Is it portfolio optimization and, and putting downside risk protection in? Well, let, let's just say you have a board, you know, an IC as, as a fund, and you know they kind of get together and said, "Hey, we're we're worried about this COVID thing that might come." I'm going back to January 2020. We may want to put some downside protection in our portfolio just in case. Or is it these 50, 100 million dollar transactions that are coming to the market in minerals? It's just locking in returns for your investors. What, what do you see is the majority of the activity or, or just the different things, you, you the ways you see companies using hedging? The, the majority of activity lately has certainly been prices have moved up 
you know, quite a few levels in terms of kind of a step change of where the market is. And this is not just mineral and royalty owners, but also kind of on the upstream side, a lot of family office equity backed money that is not highly leveraged. So not a lot of debt. And back to that kind of original story of cash flows have changed kind of that appetite to hedge. So I think what you're seeing is, you know, counter producers on that side, be it non-op or operated, seeing an opportunity to find a healthy level for them to lay off the risk and putting those, you know, hedges on to say, hey, I can go sleep at night and know that $70 is protected or, hey, I'm swapped out at an $85 level for the rest of 22. I'm Even if price goes 150, I'm perfectly happy. So you're definitely seeing activity, you know, driven more by, I would call it just not necessarily just feeling like the level is a very good level and let's put it to bed. Probably not hedge it out for three to five years, but let's hedge the next 12 months or even less, protect the level and then live to fight another day and go down the road six months later and reevaluate. And again, that's, I think that's driven differently when there's debt and a, you know, a lender is driving a need to protect the price versus when it's all equity. So I think it really comes down to that risk reward decision that's made more, more often than not now being made at an equity level. What are your thoughts on the comment that hedging became more in vogue over the last two years because there was a shift towards production and in the mineral space, buying PDP heavy assets, i.e. more hedgeable kind of portfolios. There was uncertainty around development activity and where it's going to go. And so a lot of folks focus on ducks and existing cash flow. As we, you know, the price goes up and people can maybe feel more comfortable speculating, do you see hedging going down as a result of that? Or, or do you think it's that's just a coincidence, that those types of trends? No, you can definitely envision a market where less leverage, that hedging is less of a need as a requirement, I'd say. I don't know that. I mean, it's a commodity market. So the price is always floating every day. I think there's always going to be a need to protect price at some level, short term, medium term, depending on what that risk appetite is. But to your point on acquisitions and kind of new development, that is, you know, and sometimes kind of capital structure changes that's where we see a lot of activity coming in. Hey, we just acquired this asset. We've just refinanced or, you know, hey, I'm looking at an asset that I want to acquire. Can you help me structure some product that can protect me inside of that 60-day close or things like that? So those get certainly a lot more interesting. You know, we, yeah, walk we, me walk me through that dialogue because correct me if I'm wrong, how hedging works is, you know, I go out and work through a, a PSA with a seller. I get to a, a bid and ask that meets. And then on the effective date, I then have to start locking hedges at that moment. Well, you know, when does the so the conversation with the counterpart that's buying starts beforehand? So you're doing a little bit of kind of structuring and strategizing up to that point. That's interesting. Yeah, we yeah we've worked with quite a few that as they're agreeing to a PSA or as they're coming to terms on a deal, have, have looped us in and say, hey, Chris, you know, help me work out some kind of price protection. I'm going to pay, you know this asset, I'm going to pay this price for the asset and I can justify that price by this, you know, WTI level or gas level, et cetera. And so we'll work out, you know, I, I need to, from, from my standpoint, I need to feel comfortable that even after the 60 days or 90 days, whatever it is to close, that no matter where prices have gone, I can be covered, right? So that my, that 
if your deal falls through is what I'm worried about. So if your deal falls through and we put on a swap and price has risen, you know, 20 bucks in that 60, 60 day time period, I need somebody to pay me. So it's all around really structuring what happens if the deal doesn't close. And then certainly the level is typically a level chosen that you'd be happy with if the deal closes. And then we can transition those hedges either at the existing counterparty level or to a new counterparty, either through an ovation or you know something like that. So they can get a little more nuanced, but I, I think the point would be that as markets are rising, as markets are pretty volatile and you're looking at acquisitions and you're justifying a price of that acquisition based on the current market, there's probably a need to try to protect that price at some point. And we can help kind of figure out, you know, some solutions to help do that. Well, I'll let you close out with this question. What are the most common misconceptions that you see from producers, from minerals companies around hedging when you're, you know, going and doing biz dev, meeting with someone, going for an initial meeting? What what are the common takeaways where after you get some time to talk to them about your business, they may change their tune or take a different view on things? Is there some kind of canned things you can kind of throw out there? That's a good question. I don't, you know, I don't know that there's as many misconceptions. I think commodity markets in the past 20 years and the players really in the past 20 years, um, most of us in, in my seat at other shops have kind of been around and, and kind of understand things. I think it's become a more prevalent topic. So I, I wouldn't say that our business is, is, has too many misconceptions you know, linked around it. I think from counterparty to counterparty, you know, I certainly have to explain myself versus another as we are one of the newer entrants into this space. There's certainly a call it a background check of sorts of, well, who is EDF and and what are you guys doing here in the US and, you know, things like that. So I think there's certainly some education on that front of who we are as a counterparty. But, you know, in, in, in markets in general, it, obviously around prices, it's going to come down at some point to, well, what's your price and you know, how are you arriving? Oh, that's a bad price or that's a really good price. You know, it, it's that price that you're kind of transacting at that one point in time is effectively mine and the market's price to kind of, you know, exchange that risk from one counterparty to the other. Everybody's going to price that very differently. Uh, it is a commodity market. There is certainly credit charges embedded in underwriting this credit. And, you know, there's there's charges like that that you have to account for to, to you know, to run a successful business. Well, Chris, really appreciate it. It's always, always good to see you. I know we've had a good relationship for, for many years. Uh, um, I really want to have you on because I think I see more and more companies hedging. So how do people get in touch with you if they're interested? You're in Houston. So um, I know you travel quite a bit. Just I'll let you plug a little bit and, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And same thing. I think you've done a hell of a job, uh, you know, building a, a pretty good personal brand that, that I certainly enjoy. I've certainly appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll leave my contact info. You can kind of share that up. You know, I think our, I think my hustle and our team's hustle kind of speaks for itself. So, you know, EDF is certainly, you know, one of the largest energy businesses in the world. And, you know, we're going to be here for quite a long time. And, and me as a small piece of that business, I just, you know, it's more of a, kind of service game to me and try to, you know, build good reputation and, and, you know, treat everybody kind of like I want to be treated. Awesome. Thanks again, Chris. Have a good afternoon. Uh, you too, man. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the minerals and royalties authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the minerals and royalty space for oil and gas and renewables. 
With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is continually looking to bring awareness to the mineral space in order to help investors and companies buy and sell deals and form new partnerships. If you're interested in scheduling a call to explore ways the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, marketing, capital raising, and A&D, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.